Welcome to Listening to the Giants, Episode 5. Welcome to the Listening to the Giants podcast, Episode 5. Thanks for making us part of your day. If you enjoy Listening to the Giants, please subscribe, leave a review, and a rating. You can do this on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to the podcast on the Listening to the Giants website, listeningtothegiants.com. And we would appreciate it if you would tell others about the podcast. Thanks so much. Today, we are going to conclude Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. If you're here and you're listening for the first time, there's a short biography of J.C. Ryle at the beginning of Episode 2. And you'll find the first three chapters of this book in Episodes 2 through 4. In this final chapter, Ryle gives what he calls special rules for young men. Now, it's important for us to understand that Ryle does not intend to imply that these special rules are the means by which a person can gain favor with God. Scripture is absolutely clear that since we are all sinners by nature, There is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn the right to be called children of God. I think Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is particularly pertinent to hear at this point. I think especially also because this was a passage that God used to bring J.C. Ryle to a saving knowledge of himself. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath or children deserving of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now this next verse, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, in giving these special rules, Ryle is exhorting his readers who have believed in Christ by faith alone to serve their Lord and Savior. Just as the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.31, that we, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to do all to the glory of God. Well, I hope you're eager to hear again from J.C. Ryle. So, let's begin 
listening to the Giants. Thoughts for Young Men, Chapter 4, Special Rules for Young Men. In the last place, I will set down some particular rules of conduct which I strongly advise all young men to follow. For one thing, resolve at once, by God's help, to break off every known sin, however small. Look within, each one of you. Examine your own hearts. Do you see there any habit or custom which you know to be wrong in the sight of God? If you do, delay not a moment in attacking it. Resolve at once to lay it aside. Nothing darkens the eyes of the mind so much and deadens the conscience so surely as an allowed sin. It may be a little one, but it is not the less dangerous for all that. A small leak will sink a great ship, and a small spark will kindle a great fire, and a little allowed sin in like manner will ruin an immortal soul. Take my advice, and never spare a little sin. Israel was commanded to slay every Canaanite, both great and small. Act on the same principle, and show no mercy to little sins. Well says the book of Canticles, Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. Canticles, or Song of Solomon, 2.15 Be sure no wicked man ever meant to be so wicked at his first beginnings. But he began with allowing himself some little transgression, and that led on to something greater. And that in time produced something greater still, and thus he became the miserable being that he now is. When Hazael heard from Elisha of the horrible acts that he would one day do, he said with astonishment, Is thy servant a dog, that he should do this great thing? 2 Kings 8.13 But he allowed sin to take root in his heart, and in the end he did them all. Young men, resist sin in its beginnings. They may look small and insignificant, but mind what I say, resist them. Make no compromise. Let no sin lodge quietly and undisturbed in your heart. The mother of mischief, says an old proverb, is no bigger than a midge's wing. There is nothing finer than the point of a needle, but when it has made a hole, it draws all the thread after it. Remember the apostles' words, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 Many a young man could tell you with sorrow and shame that he traces up the ruin of all his worldly prospects to the point I speak of, to giving way to sin in its beginnings. He began habits of falsehood and dishonesty in little things, and they grew upon him. Step by step, he has gone on from bad to worse, till he has done things that at one time he would have thought impossible, till at last he has lost his place, lost his character, lost his comfort, and well-nigh lost his soul. He allowed a gap in the wall of his conscience, because it seemed a little one, and once allowed, that gap grew larger every day, till at length the whole wall seemed to come down. Remember this especially in matters of truth and honesty. Make conscience of pins and syllables. 
He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Luke 16.10 Whatever the world may please to say, there are no little sins. All great buildings are made up of little parts. The first stone is as important as any other. All habits are formed by a succession of little acts. And the first little act is of mighty consequence. The axe in the fable only begged the trees to let him have one little piece of wood to make a handle, and he would never trouble them any more. He got it, and then soon he cut them all down. The devil only wants to get the wedge of a little allowed sin into your heart, and you will soon be all his own. It is a wise saying of old William Bridge, There is nothing small betwixt us and God, for God is an infinite God. There are two ways of coming down from the top of a church steeple. One is to jump down, and the other is to come down by the steps. But both will lead you to the bottom. So also there are two ways of going to hell. One is to walk into it with your eyes open. Few people do that. The other is to go down by the steps of little sins. And that way, I fear, is only too common. Put up with a few little sins, and you will soon want a few more. Even a heathen could say, Whoever was content with only one sin? And then your course will be regularly worse and worse every year. Well did Jeremy Taylor describe the progress of sin in a man. First it startles him. Then it becomes pleasing then easy, then delightful, then frequent, then habitual, then confirmed, then the man is impenitent, then obstinate, then resolves never to repent, and then he is damned. Young men, if you would not come to this, recollect the rule I give you this day, resolve at once to break off every known sin. For another thing, Resolve by God's help to shun everything which may prove an occasion of sin. It is an excellent saying of good Bishop Paul, He that would be safe from the acts of evil must widely avoid the occasions. It is not enough that we determine to commit no sin. We must carefully keep at a distance from all approaches to it. By this test we ought to try our ways of spending our time the books that we read, the families that we visit, the society into which we go. We must not content ourselves with saying, there is nothing positively wrong here. We must go further and say, is there anything here which may prove to me the occasion of sin? This, be it remembered, is one great reason why idleness is so much to be avoided. It is not that doing nothing is of itself so positively wicked. It is the opportunity it affords to evil thoughts and vain imaginations. It is the wide door it opens for Satan to throw in the seeds of bad things. It is this which is mainly to be feared. If David had not given occasion to the devil by idling on his housetop at Jerusalem, he would probably never have seen Bathsheba nor murdered Uriah. This, too, is one great reason why worldly amusements are so objectionable. It may be difficult, in some instances, 
to show that they are in themselves positively unscriptural and wrong. But there is little difficulty in showing that the tendency of almost all of them is most injurious to the soul. They sow the seeds of an earthly and sensual frame of mind. They war against the life of faith. They promote an unhealthy and unnatural craving after excitement. They minister to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. They dim the view of heaven and eternity and give a false color to the things of time. They indispose the heart for private prayer and scripture reading and calm communion with God. The man who mingles in them is like one who gives Satan vantage ground. He has a battle to fight, and he gives his enemy the help of sun and wind and hill. It would be strange indeed if he did not find himself continually overcome. Young men, endeavor as much as in you lies to keep clear of everything which may prove injurious to your soul. Never hold a candle to the devil. People may say you are overscrupulous, too particular. Where is the mighty harm of such and such things? But heed them not. It is dangerous to play tricks with edged tools. It is far more dangerous to take liberties with your immortal soul. He that would be safe must not come near the brink of danger. He must look on his heart as a magazine of gunpowder and be cautious not to handle one spark of temptation more than he can help. Where is the use of your praying, lead us not into temptation, unless you are yourselves careful not to run into it, and deliver us from evil unless you show a desire to keep out of its way? Take example from Joseph. Not merely did he refuse his mistress's solicitation to sin, but he showed his prudence in refusing to be with her at all. Genesis 39.10 Lay to heart the advice of Solomon, not merely to go not in the path of wickedness, but to avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. Proverbs 4.15 Not merely not to be drunken, but not even to look upon the wine when it is red. Proverbs 23.31 The man who took the vow of a Nazarite in Israel not only took no wine, but he even abstained from grapes in any shape whatever. Abhor that which is evil, says Paul to the Romans, Romans 12.9. Not merely do not do it. Flee youthful lusts, he writes to Timothy. Get away from them as far as possible. 2 Timothy 2.22 Alas, how needful are such cautions! Dinah must needs go out among the wicked Shechemites to see their ways, and she lost her character. Lot must needs pitch his tent near sinful Sodom, and he lost everything but his life. Young men, be wise in time. Do not be always trying how near you can allow the enemy of your souls to come and yet escape him. Hold him at arm's length. Try to keep clear of temptation as far as possible, and this will be one great help to keep clear of sin. For another thing, resolve never to forget the eye of God. The eye of God. Think of that. Everywhere, in every house, in every field, in every room, in every company, alone, 
or in a crowd, the eye of God is always upon you. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3 And they are eyes that read hearts as well as actions. Endeavor, I beseech you all, to realize this fact. Recollect that you have to do with an all-seeing God, a God who never slumbereth nor sleepeth, a God who understands your thoughts afar off, and with whom the night shines as the day. You may leave your father's roof and go away like the prodigal into a far country and think that there is nobody to watch your conduct. But the eye and ear of God are there before you. You may deceive your parents or employers. You may tell them falsehoods and be one thing before their faces and another thing behind their backs. But you cannot deceive God. He knows you through and through. He heard what you said as you came here today. He knows what you are thinking of at this minute. He has set your most secret sins in the light of his countenance, and they will one day come out before the world to your shame, except you take heed. How little this is really felt. How many things are done continually which men would never do if they thought they were seen. How many matters are transacted in the chambers of imagination, which would never bear the light of day. Yes, men entertain thoughts in private and say words in private and do acts in private which they would be ashamed and blush to have exposed before the world. The sound of a footstep coming has stopped many a deed of wickedness. A knock at the door has caused many an evil work to be hastily suspended and hurriedly laid aside. But, oh, what miserable driveling folly is all this! There is an all-seeing witness with us wherever we go. Lock the door, draw down the blind, shut the shutters, put out the candle. It matters not. It makes no difference. God is everywhere. You cannot shut him out or prevent his seeing. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13 Well did young Joseph understand this when his mistress tempted him. There was no one in the house to see them, no human eye to witness against him. But Joseph was one who lived as seeing him that is invisible. How can I do this great wickedness, said he, and sin against God? Genesis 39.9 Young men, I ask you all to read Psalm 139. I advise you all to learn it by heart. Make it the test of all your dealings in this world's business. Say to yourself often, Do I remember that God sees me? Live as in the sight of God. This is what Abraham did. He walked before him. This is what Enoch did. He walked with him. This is what heaven itself will be, the eternal presence of God. Do nothing you would not like God to see. Say nothing you would not like God to hear. Write nothing that you would not like God to read. Go to no place where you would not like God to find you. Read no book of which you would not like God to say, Show it me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like to have God say, What art thou doing? For another thing, Be diligent in the use of all public means of grace. 
be regular in going to the house of God whenever it is open for prayer and preaching, and it is in your power to attend. Be regular in keeping the Lord's day holy, and determine that God's day out of seven shall henceforth always be given to its rightful owner. I would not leave any false impression on your minds. Do not go away and say, I told you that keeping your church made up the whole of religion. I tell you no such thing. I have no wish to see you grow up formalists and Pharisees. If you think the mere carrying of your body to a certain house at certain times on a certain day in the week will make you a Christian and prepare you to meet God, I tell you flatly that you are miserably deceived. All services without heart service are unprofitable and vain. They are only true worshipers who worship God in spirit and in truth. The Father seeketh such to worship Him. John 4.23 But means of grace are not to be despised because they are not saviors. Gold is not food. You cannot eat it. But you would not therefore say it is useless and throw it away. Your soul's eternal well-doing most certainly does not depend on means of grace. But it is no less certain that without them, as a general rule, your soul will not do well. God might take all who are saved to heaven in a chariot of fire, as he did Elijah, but he does not do so. He might teach them all by visions and dreams and miraculous interpositions without requiring them to read or think for themselves, but he does not do so. And why not? Because he is a God that works by means, and it is his law and will that in all man's dealings with him means shall be used. None but a fool or enthusiast would think of building a house without ladders and scaffolding, and just so no wise man will despise means. I dwell the more on this point, because Satan will try hard to fill your minds with arguments against means. He will draw your attention to the numbers of persons who use them and are no better for the using. See there, he will whisper, do you not observe those who go to church are no better than those who stay away? But do not let this move you. It is never fair to argue against a thing because it is improperly used. It does not follow that means of grace can do no good because many attend on them and get no good from them. Medicine is not to be despised because many take it and do not recover their health. No man would think of giving up eating and drinking because others choose to eat and drink improperly and so make themselves ill. The value of means of grace, like other things, depends, in great measure, on the manner and the spirit in which we use them. I dwell on this point, too, because of the strong anxiety I feel that every young man should regularly hear the preaching of Christ's gospel. I cannot tell you how important I think this is. By God's blessing, the ministry of the gospel might be the means of converting your soul, of leading you to a saving knowledge of Christ, of making you a child of God in deed and in truth. This would be cause for eternal thankfulness indeed. This would be an event over which angels would rejoice. But even if this were not the case, there is a restraining power and influence in the ministry of the gospel, under which I earnestly desire every young man to be brought. 
There are thousands whom it keeps back from evil, though it has not yet turned them unto God. It has made them far better members of society, though it has not yet made them true Christians. There is a kind of mysterious power in the faithful preaching of the gospel, which tells insensibly on multitudes who listen to it without receiving it into their hearts. To hear sin cried down and holiness cried up, to hear Christ exalted and the works of the devil denounced, to hear the kingdom of heaven and its blessedness described, and the world and its emptiness exposed, to hear this week after week, Sunday after Sunday, is seldom without good effect to the soul. It makes it far harder afterwards to run into any excess of riot and profligacy. It acts as a wholesome check upon a man's heart. This, I believe, is one way in which the promise of God is made good. My word shall not return unto me void. Isaiah 55.11 There is much truth in that strong saying of Whitfield. The gospel keeps many a one from the jail and gallows, if it does not keep him from hell. Let me here name another point which is closely connected with this subject. Let nothing ever tempt you to become a Sabbath-breaker. I press this on your attention. Make conscience of giving all your Sabbath to God. A spirit of disregard for this holy day is growing up amongst us with fearful rapidity, and not least among young men. Sunday traveling by railways and steamboats, Sunday visiting, Sunday excursions are becoming every year more common than they were, and are doing infinite harm to souls. Young men, be jealous on this point. Whether you live in town or country, take up a decided line. Resolve not to profane your Sabbath. Let not the plausible argument of needful relaxation for your body, let not the example of all around you, let not the invitation of companions with whom you may be thrown, let none of these things move you to depart from the settled rule that God's day shall be given to God. Once give over caring for the Sabbath, and in the end you will give over caring for your soul. The steps which lead to this conclusion are easy and regular. Begin with not honoring God's day, and soon you will not honor God's house. Cease to honor God's house, and you will soon cease to honor God's book. Cease to honor God's book, and by and by you will give God no honor at all. Let a man lay the foundation of having no Sabbath, and I am never surprised if he finishes with the top stone of no God. It is a remarkable saying of Judge Hale. Of all the persons who were convicted of capital crimes while he was on the bench, he found only a few who would not confess, on inquiry, that they began their career of wickedness by a neglect of the Sabbath. Young men, you may be thrown among companions who forget the honor of the Lord's day. But resolve by God's help that you will always remember to keep it holy. Honor it by regular attendance at some place where the gospel is preached. Settle down under a faithful ministry, and once settled, let your place in church never be empty. Believe me, you will find a special blessing following you. If you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth. Isaiah 58, 
13 through 14. And one thing is very certain. Your feelings about the Sabbath will always be a test and criterion of your fitness for heaven. Sabbaths are a foretaste and a fragment of heaven. The man who finds them a burden and not a privilege may be sure that his heart stands in need of a mighty change. For another thing, resolve that wherever you are, you will pray. Prayer is the life breath of a man's soul. Without it, we may have a name to live and be counted Christians, but we are dead in the sight of God. The feeling that we must cry to God for mercy and peace is a mark of grace, and the habit of spreading before Him our soul's wants is an evidence that we have the spirit of adoption. And prayer is the appointed way to obtain the relief of our spiritual necessities. It opens the treasury and sets the fountain flowing. If we have not, it is because we ask not. Prayer is the way to procure the outpouring of the Spirit upon our hearts. Jesus has promised the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. He is ready to come down with all His precious gifts, renewing, sanctifying, purifying, strengthening, cheering, encouraging, enlightening, teaching, directing, guiding into all truth. But then He waits to be entreated. And here it is, I say with sorrow, here it is that men fall short so miserably. Few indeed are to be found who pray, many who go down on their knees and say a form perhaps, but few who pray, few who cry unto God, few who call upon the Lord, few who seek as if they wanted to find, few who knock as if they hungered and thirsted, few who wrestle, few who strive with God earnestly for an answer. Few who give him no rest, few who continue in prayer, few who watch under prayer, few who pray always without ceasing and faint not. Yes, few pray. It is just one of the things assumed as a matter of course, but seldom practiced, a thing which is everybody's business, but in fact hardly anybody performs. Young men, believe me. If your soul is to be saved, you must pray. God has no dumb children. If you are to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil, you must pray. It is in vain to look for strength in the hour of trial if it has not been sought for. You may be thrown with those who never do it. You may have to sleep in the same room with someone who never asks anything of God. Still, mark my words, you must pray. I can quite believe you find great difficulties about it, difficulties about opportunities and seasons and places. I dare not lay down two positive rules on such points as these. I leave them to your own conscience. You must be guided by circumstances. Our Lord Jesus Christ prayed on a mountain. Isaac prayed in the fields. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall as he lay upon his bed. Daniel prayed by the riverside. Peter, the apostle, on the housetop. I have heard of young men praying in stables and haylofts. All that I contend for is this. You must know what it is to enter into your closet. Matthew 6, 6. There must be stated times when you must speak to God face to face. You must, every day, have your seasons for prayer. You must pray. Without this, 
all advice and counsel is useless. This is that piece of spiritual armor which Paul names last in his catalog in Ephesians 6. But it is in truth first in value and importance. This is the meat which you must daily eat if you would travel safely through the wilderness of this life. It is only in the strength of this that you will get onward towards the mount of God. I have heard it said that the needle grinders of Sheffield sometimes wear a magnetic mouthpiece at their work, which catches all the fine dust that flies around them, prevents it from entering their lungs, and so saves their lives. Prayer is the mouthpiece that you must wear continually, or else you will never work on uninjured by the unhealthy atmosphere of this sinful world. You must pray. Young men, be sure no time is so well spent as that which a man spends upon his knees. Make time for this, whatever your employment may be. Think of David, king of Israel. What does he say? Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Psalm fifty-five seventeen. Think of Daniel. He had all the business of a kingdom on his hands, yet he prayed three times a day. See there the secret of his safety in wicked Babylon. Think of Solomon. He begins his reign with a prayer for help and assistance, and hence his wonderful prosperity. Think of Nehemiah. He could find time to pray to the God of heaven, even when standing in the presence of his master, Artaxerxes. Think of the example these godly men have left you, and go and do likewise. Oh, that the Lord may give you all the spirit of grace and supplication. Wilt thou not from this time cry unto God, my Father, thou art the guide of my youth? Jeremiah 3, 4. Gladly would I consent that all this address should be forgotten, if only this doctrine of the importance of prayer might be impressed on your hearts. Conclusion And now I hasten towards a conclusion. I have said things that many perhaps will not like and not receive, but I appeal to your consciences. Are they not true? Young men, you have all consciences. Corrupt and ruined by the fall as we are, each of us has a conscience. In a corner of each heart there sits a witness for God, a witness who condemns when we do wrong and approves when we do right. To that witness I make my appeal this day, are not the things that I have been saying true? Go then, young men, and resolve this day to remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the day of grace is past, before your conscience has become hardened by age and deadened by repeated trampling underfoot, while you have strength and time and opportunities, go and join yourself to the Lord in an everlasting covenant not to be forgotten. The Spirit will not always strive. The voice of conscience will become feebler and fainter every year you continue to resist it. The Athenians said to Paul, We will hear thee again of this matter. But they had heard him for the last time. Acts 17.32 Make haste and delay not. Linger and hesitate no more. Think of the unspeakable comfort you will give to parents, relations, and friends if you take my counsel. They have expended time, money, and health to rear you and to make you what you are. 
Surely they deserve some consideration at your hands. Who can reckon up the joy and gladness which young people have it in their power to occasion? Who can tell the anxiety and sorrow that sons like Esau and Hophni and Phinehas and Absalom may cause? Truly does Solomon say, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Proverbs 10.1 O consider these things and give God your heart. Let it not be said of you at last, as it is of many, that your youth was a blunder, your manhood a struggle, and your old age a regret. Think of the good you may be the instruments of doing to the world. Almost all the eminent saints of God sought the Lord early. Moses, Samuel, David, Daniel, all served God from their youth. God seems to delight in putting special honor upon young servants. Remember the honor he placed on our own young king, Edward VI? And what might we not confidently expect if young men in our own day would consecrate the springtime of their lives to God? Agents are wanted now in almost ever great and good cause, and cannot be found. Machinery of every kind for spreading truth exists, but there are not hands to work it. Money is more easily got for doing good than men. Ministers are wanted for new churches. Missionaries are wanted for new stations. Visitors are wanted for neglected districts. Teachers are wanted for new schools. Many a good cause is standing still merely for the want of agents. The supply of godly, faithful, trustworthy men for posts like I have named is far below the demand. Young men of the present day, you are wanted for God. This is peculiarly an age of activity. We are shaking off some of our past selfishness. Men no longer sleep the sleep of apathy and indifference about others, as their forefathers did. They are beginning to be ashamed of thinking like Cain, am I my brother's keeper? A wide field of usefulness is open before you, if you are only willing to enter upon it. The harvest is great, and the laborers are few. Be zealous of good works. Come, come to the help of the Lord against the mighty. This is, in some sort, to be like God, not only good, but doing good, Psalm 119.68. This is the way to follow the steps of your Lord and Savior. He went about doing good. This is to live as David did. He served his own generation, Acts 13.36. And who can doubt that this is the path which most becomes an immortal soul? Who would not rather leave this world like Josiah, lamented by all, than to depart like Jehoram, without being desired? 2 Chronicles 21.20 Whether it is better to be an idle, frivolous, useful cumberer of the ground, to live for your body, your selfishness, your lusts, and your pride, or to spend and be spent in the glorious cause of usefulness to your fellow men, to be like Wilberforce or Lord Shaftesbury, a blessing to your country and the world, to be like Howard, the friend of the prisoner and the captive, to be like Schwartz, the spiritual father of hundreds of immortal souls in heathen lands, to be like that man of God, Robert Machane, a burning and shining light, an epistle of Christ, 
known and read of all men, the quickener of every Christian heart that comes across your path. Oh, who can doubt? Who can for one moment doubt? Young men, consider your responsibilities. Think of the privilege and luxury of doing good. Resolve this day to be useful. At once, give your hearts to Christ. Think lastly of the happiness that will come to your own soul if you serve God. Happiness by the way as you travel through life, and happiness in the end when the journey is over. Believe me, whatever vain notions you may have heard, believe me, there is a reward for the righteous even in this world. Godliness has indeed the promise of this life, as well as of that which is to come. There is a solid peace in feeling that God is your friend. There is a real satisfaction in knowing that, however great your unworthiness, you are complete in Christ, that you have an enduring portion, that you have chosen that good part which shall not be taken from you. The backslider in heart may well be filled with his own ways, but a good man shall be satisfied from himself. Proverbs 14.14 The path of the worldly man grows darker and darker every year that he lives. The path of the Christian is as a shining light, brighter and brighter to the very end. His sun is just rising when the sun of the worldly is setting forever. His best things are all beginning to blossom and bloom forever when those of the worldly are all slipping out of his hands and passing away. Young men, these things are true. Suffer the word of exhortation. Be persuaded. Take up the cross. Follow Christ. Yield yourselves to God. That's our podcast for today. Next time, we'll be hearing a sermon written by Robert Murray Machine. That episode will be posted in two weeks. If you subscribe to Listening to the Giants on your favorite podcast platform, you'll be notified when that episode is posted. Also, I'd appreciate receiving your feedback about this podcast. You can leave us a message by visiting the contact page on the Listening to the Giants website at listeningtothegiants.com. Or you can also send an email simply by addressing it to contact at listeningtothegiants.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue to listen to the Giants. Giants.